All right, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get into our study today. Father, thank you again for the provision that you are making in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the privilege that we have of opening up truth, understanding those things that are contained in your Word. Help us to grasp them, help us to utilize them, and help us, Lord, to minister one to another as a result of these things that you build into our lives. Lord, we're interested in building people in edification of the saints, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Help us to be loyal to that commitment, and we'll give you the praise and the glory in Christ's name. Amen. When we finished up last week, we were talking about the aspect of learning from God's Word the excitement that you, ha you should have in your role as a woman. That's one of the things that will really uh, give a, uh, an attitude that will no longer resist God's will. Uh, I, I want to share something with you this morning that uh, spins off of that to a certain degree. Um, I, I just want to give you a, a bare outline of it. Maybe another time we could study it more, more completely and more deeply. But I discover in my ministry... Uh, that there are a lot of gals who are struggling uh, with this whole business of, of, of uh, God's plan within the marriage because of a husband that, uh, that really doesn't have any commitment to the things of the Lord. And uh, they almost feel that it's their Christian duty to resist the will of their husband. There is a place, as we've pointed out before, for appeal where you can, you can simply um, work out ways where you can approach your husband in a loving and kind way without a, self -condem without a, a condemning attitude. Uh, but there are just a lot of things that happen that, uh, that in each case everybody's different. You know, we're all spiritual snowflakes anyway. We all, God gives us uh, all different experiences. And what Scripture deals with is is uh, some basic uh, principles that can be applied in each situation. And uh, uh, we run into this problem a, a great deal. And I think there are some things that, uh, that relate really to the matter of forgiveness that uh, uh, I've shared at a couple of other times and places. Uh, and and uh, really... Uh, I think there's some insight into the whole matter of dealing with a situation like that uh, from the life of Joseph. Uh, you remember that Joseph was badly mistreated. Now, not by his father in this case. It happened to be by his brothers. They didn't have authority over him, um, but uh, nevertheless, uh, they, uh, they, were, uh, they utilized their superior numbers and superior strength to lord it over Joseph and to put him down. He was wronged by his brothers uh, in their attitude from the beginning. He was wronged by them as they uh, sold him into slavery. And then when he was a slave, he was the best possible slave. Um, I like to think of the four phases of, of Joseph's life, each of which was a test uh, in the in the matter of uh, of his level of commitment, um, first of all, uh, he was tested as a son, and uh, he was obedient to his father and became his father's favorite, uh, which was wrong on the part of the father. Uh, but the reason that he was was because of rebellion on the part of the other kids, and uh, therefore here uh, jo Jacob finally had a son that would listen to him, and. Uh, and so he was tested as a son, as the favorite son, because then jealousy arose. And, uh, and not only that, but God treated him special in that he gave him a vision. And he was tested as a son. Uh, under the authority of his father, he was, he was willing to submit. Under the, the intolerance of his brothers, uh, he was willing to continue to be kind to them. There is a hint of pride uh, that arose after he had his two visions. Uh, you can detect that, and that was wrong. That was something that God had to work over in his life. It wasn't as though Joseph was perfect. As a son, he failed in the matter of pride. And uh, nevertheless, he, he learned his lessons well, 
and uh, then, of course, was sold into slavery. And he had a chance to be tested uh, as a slave. And uh, as a slave, Joseph uh, was under an authority. Now, the authority was, was uh, a fairly good authority, uh, did not mistreat him in any great way, uh, but uh, he recognized that God was with him, and therefore he committed everything in the house into the hands of Joseph. And uh, Joseph was, was in a, a tremendous uh, position of opportunity there, uh, which gave him another degree of maturity in his relationship with others. And you watch him there and you realize how much he learned as a son to be then a faithful slave. Now, most Christians looking at this, you know, if they saw this in their own life, would say, but he's headed the wrong direction. You call this the blessing of God? But Scripture tells us that if you are abased, you will be exalted. God's way up is down. God wants us to get to the place where we're humbled in the sight of God. Then he gives us grace all the way along and ultimately gives us glory. We don't realize that you have to bend to get God's grace. You have to, you have, this is of course the, the whole thing that's happening in our uh, women's lib movement and the whole scene, you see. They think that in order to get to the top, in order to, to, to have a place of prestige, they have to crawl their way upward. God says, no, you do that and I will resist you. But if you are willing to be humbled by the circumstances that I bring into your life, receiving from my hand the things that I give to you, knowing that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, he says, I promise that instead of resisting you and setting myself in array against you, that I will give you grace. Now grace, of course is that which God pours out and bestows upon people uh, according to his person. It's all that God is free to do for the believer on the work, on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. It has to do with the pouring out of everything that God has provided for those that love him. And uh, we know that eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered the heart of men the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. That's something that was a mystery in the Old Testament. They couldn't even conceive of all the things God prepared. But God has revealed these things unto us by His Spirit. He gives grace. He's revealed all of these things that according to His grace He provides for us. So there's grace to walk the Christian life. There's grace to live the Christian life. And it's unmerited favor. It's not something we deserve. Because if we start talking about what we deserve, then we're talking about God condemning us to a Christless eternity and throwing us into hell. That's what we deserve. I really shudder when some of these gals says, all I'm asking for is what I deserve. If they did, if God gave them what they deserved, hell would be their lot. Sin is separated between you and God. There is no place for asking God what we deserve. Because all we deserve is his wrath and his judgment. So you see, even a, a gal today who is being beaten by her husband and everything else, she still has better than she deserves. Far better to lose a limb, Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, than to, than to uh, be cast into hell and be, be suffering for all of eternity because of separation from God and living in everlasting darkness. That's why, that's why you know, we've lost our perspective in this day. We see everything in a relative sense because we live in an age of relativity. You see a woman that, that may be at, at one position in her life and experience, and you see yourself as being a little lower, and you compare with her. Christ said, or uh, the Apostle Paul said, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, that you're always going to be wrong as long as you compare yourself with someone else. What you need to do is look at God's standard and God's purpose and compare yourself with that. And that will be the thing that will really, really come to pass. So God says that he gives grace. He pours out his grace. Now every time you try to move upward, then God sets himself in array against you. Now you want God against you, or do you want God for you? If God be for us, who can be against us? 
But the only way that you can avoid the resistance of God in your life and experience is to allow God to bring circumstances into your life to humble you. And when you are humbled before God, he gives you grace in the process and ultimately gives you glory. You share in his glory. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. Now you see, people want glory. They want a shortcut to glory. And Satan in the garden tempted Adam and Eve to simply take a shortcut to glory. To be independent of God and to get what you could, get all the gusto you can because you only go around in life once. That's the principle. I, I think it's neat that a beer ad has picked that up. Constantly reminds us of Satan's philosophy. Grab all the gusto you can because you only go around once. That's exactly what Satan said in the garden. He wanted them to get what they could at the moment. Live for the moment. Don't take the long look because the long look requires faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And that's why it's difficult. We've, you know, Some of the gals have indicated that they're not coming to class anymore because they say that you, know, you can't do these things. You can't live these things. Well, the reason is there's a lack of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those that come unto God must believe that he is who he claims to be and that he will do what he claims to do, that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And without faith, you can't make it. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. All right, so now what we're saying then is that God gives then the glory. Now that's what happened in the life of Joseph. And so you have, you have first of all, Joseph as a son having to learn to overcome his pride. And then as a slave, he again did the right thing and responded rightly and God is bringing him down in order to ultimately bring him to glory. And what happened? Well, he had to learn to deal with temptation. See how God, God dealt with pride here. Here he had to deal with temptation. Because Potiphar's wife came and tried to seduce him and so on and so forth. And uh, what happened there was that he resisted the temptation. Wherewithal shall a young man's cleanse his ways by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Uh, the, the, the young man Joseph just simply responded to what God wanted. He responded negatively to what he knew was wrong. And he became then a sufferer. Now that's a third level of opportunity for him to grow. Because you see, after he had he did everything right as a slave, now is it fair for him to be the right kind of a son only to be sold into slavery and then to be the right kind of a slave only to be thrown in prison because he refused to do the wrong thing see life is really confused and mixed up but you see as a sufferer Joseph had to learn patience You recall the story, two men were thrown in prison, he spoke to, they both had a dream, he interpreted their dream, and then he, one of them, the dream was condemning him that he was going to die, uh, the uh, baker was going to die, the butler was going to be brought back into the presence of the king and back into the favor of Potiphar. And so Joseph just kind of snuck it in there, you know, just a little manipulation. But it backfired. It didn't work. He said to the man, the, the, the butler, he says, listen, when you talk to the king, when you talk to Potiphar, and you're going to be right next to him there, just remind him of me. Now, meanwhile, he's being a good sufferer. He's got the keys to the prison. They trust him. He's a trustworthy man. He's got good qualities, but he didn't have patience. And God had to deal with him on the level of patience. You see... Here's the thing. Will you understand this with me? God is far more concerned about building the character of an individual than he is about the external circumstances through which he must pass him to teach him that character. 
That's a profound statement. But think it through. Do you realize that one of the reasons that God does not answer your prayer in regard to uh, your husband uh, and his conduct and the way he treats you is because God is not primarily interested in holding back your husband from mistreating you. Did you hear that? God is not primarily interested. Oh, Christ is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows what it is to be beaten. He knows what it is to be hated. He knows what it is to be spit upon. He understands. No, don't think he doesn't understand. But he is not primarily interested in relieving you from that circumstance. He is primarily interested in building character into you so that you'll be a woman of God. And you see, when God develops you as a woman of God, there may be left a few years of your life where you will be a useful tool, having been molded and made through this circumstance. And you have the notion that you're really not going to be all that you can be for God unless you right now can be all you, all you want to be for God. So you want to hurry up the process by changing the circumstances. God says, hold it. No. I want to make you a vessel unto honor, meat for the master's use. I want to tell you something. You go to a place where they use a potter's wheel. And they will spin the piece of clay. And they'll begin to shape it. Now there's a certain amount of, of uh, shaping that has to be done on the outside. Certain amount of things that take place. But when the potter is ready to make the pot into the shape that he intends, he does all of the work from the inside. The shape of the pot is not made by the outside, but by the inside. And you see, we've got the notion, you see, that, that time is important to God. A day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. God will take all the time that's necessary to make you a woman of God. And then as a woman of God, he can mightily use you. And he would far rather use you as a woman of God effectively for a year than he would to have, have you serving him for 20 years as less than a woman of God. Now, if we just can't grasp that. We've got to change our thinking and begin to think like God thinks. Why in the world did God take a promising young man like Moses who had the best of parental training and then take him and took him into a university setting where he got all of the skills of Egypt. Forty years. Forty years. Zeal for God, love for God's people, desire for righteousness. What a man, right? And God put him on the shelf for forty more years. Forty more years. And taught him patience and humility and a few of those lessons that would stand him in good stead and after 80 years God says alright Moses I'm ready to use you and Moses by that time said who me? there's an amazing sequence in the book of Acts the apostle Paul said two things, asked two questions. The first one was, Who? Who art thou, Lord? Chapter 9, chapter 22. Both of those accounts of the conversion of the Apostle Paul, or it's also chapter 29, uh, or 26. Chapter 9, chapter 22, chapter uh, uh, 26. All of those chapters reiterate the story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul. The first story, second and third, all say, Who art thou, Lord? Right? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. When he understood who he was, then he asked another question. What wilt thou have me to do? That's in chapter 9 and chapter 22. In chapter 26, it doesn't say what. 
it says, Wherefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. God gives him the what there, even with, in, in that particular account, without the, the question being found there. After he says, Who art thou, Lord? The Lord tells him who he is and what he wants him to do. But the sequence is the same. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are trying to do something for God before they've allowed God to show, who, show them who he is. What is the building of character? Building of character in the life of a person is the bringing into conformity to the, the person of Jesus Christ, that life. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name. What does the name mean? The name tells who he is. The name speaks of the character. Whatever you do should be in keeping with the character of who he is. And we get all fouled up on that. And I contend that many lives may only have one purpose. That is a major purpose. Not that God doesn't do other things, but it may have a major mission and a major purpose. God designed us and made us for a reason. Made us for a purpose. Made us spiritual snowflakes. All of us different. All of us with different abilities and different talents because every one of us has a different purpose. And there are purposes along the way, but God may have a main thing he wants you to do. There may be one person he wants you to reach. Jim Elliott was a man who spent all those years training. His attitude was summed up in the little statement that they found in his diary after his death. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose. And Jim and the five others, as you know, or four others, were, went to Ecuador and uh, tried to reach and make contact with the Aka Indians. And those five promising missionaries, their lives were snuffed out. Why? What was their purpose in life? Their purpose was to reach the Aka Indians. Let's say that that was their purpose. I, you know, there may have been other things involved, and there are a lot of ramifications that can't be uh, necessarily understood from our perspective, but let's say that it was the purpose of God for them to reach the Aka Indians. Was their death a tragedy? Was it wrongful? Of course not. You know why? Because as a result of their death, the Aka Indians were reached. And you see, the marvelous, the marvelous picture here is that God's way is not our way. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And as the heaven is higher than the earth, so is his way higher than our ways, and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. We cannot expect that God would ever allow us to uh, just go our own way and do our own thing and in the process serve him a bit. God is not unrighteous, and he cannot use unrighteousness. What he has to do is build us and mold us and make us. Now, that doesn't mean we can't be used along the way. Joseph is a tremendous example of that. He was tremendously useful to God as an obedient son. He was tremendously useful to God as a slave, because Potiphar saw that God was with him. Therefore, he committed everything into his hand. He was tremendously profitable as a sufferer. God used him to interpret a dream and to give encouragement uh, to one and warning to another. And God, God just blessed him, but blessed him on a level that from the human viewpoint was wrong. All right? Now, the third thing was, and this was the greatest test of all, as a sovereign. You think you think that you are being tested as a sufferer, wait until God gives you the opportunity to be over other people. There's the great test. There's where he had to learn forgiveness. You see, it's very easy for you to say, I forgive you when you have no choice anyway. where it's just eating you up, not hurting them at all because they're over you. And you see, when Joseph was in prison and all of that, you see, what good would it be to hold a grudge against his brothers? But I'll tell you something, when he became the sovereign, he had a chance to find out whether or not 
he had the power to forgive. Now, with that in mind, let me just show you, looking over at Genesis, chapter 47, 48, 49, 50. There are four lessons that you can learn concerning the forgiveness of Joseph. <coughs> and I believe that it should give you a whole new attitude toward your husband in terms of your relationship with him. Not only in the area of forgiveness, but also in the area of not resisting his will. Because you see, these principles apply equally to the matter of forgiveness, which is the major application, I think, in, in uh, Genesis 50. But also, it would apply in many, many other areas in regard to trusting God in the circumstances in which you find yourself. So let me just give you these four things. The first one is that forgiveness always views the offender as being under God's control. Always views the offender as being under God's control. You understand what I'm saying? That means that if your husband does something to you that is wrong, he is nevertheless under God's control. Is God God or not? Is he sovereign or is he not? How well do you know God? God has made a promise. He has said this, There hath, ta there hath taken you, uh, uh, no temptation hath taken you, but such as is common to man. You do not have a unique circumstance. Oh, its details are unique. But in the overall principle, it is not unique. There is no temptation, no trial taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. God is faithful. He said, what if this other person, is God faithful? Yeah, but what, this other guy, I mean, doesn't he have a choice in the matter? I mean, is God faithful? You've got to believe that God is faithful and that God is in control. God is faithful who will never allow you to be tested above that you're able. He'll never take you beyond the breaking point. That is a promise. And without you manipulating or taking the initiative, he'll make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 There is absolutely no circumstance in which you find yourself but what God is in control. Now what, what happened here? Well, if you go back to chapter 45, you'll see there that it says in verse 8, when the brethren came to him and said, Oh no, you're Joseph. <gasps> now what's going to happen? This was before Jacob came into the picture. They're down in Egypt. He's just revealed himself, wept on their shoulder and said, I'm Joseph. And they said, Oh no. What does he say in verse 8? So now it was not you that sent me here. What? They were only the secondary cause. It was not you that sent me here, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler throughout uh, the land of Egypt. The Lord sent me here. I'm not counting and reckoning on the fact that you have done this thing in order to get back at me, in order to, to take out your jealousy upon me and all of those things. He said, I don't, I'm not reckoning that way. I am reckoning on the basis of the fact that I am in the plan of God and I am in the will of God and in the process of things God used you to get me to the right place at the right time to save the people of Israel. Let me ask you something. If you'd been Joseph and you didn't know the story, how would you have felt? about the time you were down in that pit, about the time that the Shulamites came along and you were sold into slavery. How would you feel, felt? 
abused. It's not fair. Why did God let this happen? We don't know all of the responses Joseph might have fought through. But I know this, that now that we've got the story from beginning to end, and for goodness sakes, read that last, those last chapters of Genesis first before you read the other part. Then you'll be able to cheer him on to victory all along the way. The story turned out right. Not a fairy tale, but a sovereign God moving in the hearts and the lives of men. It's the second thing. Forgiveness always views personal offenses as ultimately issuing in the public good. God has others in mind. It's one of the things which I always get concerned about where gals insist that it's God's will that they get a divorce. And let's say that children are involved. What we've seen in our generation is that the sins of the fathers are visited on the third and fourth generation. Young people's attitudes toward marriage today is so loose. And they're just throwing it up in our face. They're saying, look, you say nothing about divorce. What's the difference if we live together or have four or five wives in the process of things? We're suffering this today. A statistic I heard yesterday is that uh, Unlike the last three years, marriages exceeded divorces last year. Good news? No, not really. Because the hidden statistic is the large number of people who are living together without any benefit of marriage. They don't count. And there are some that are saying that marriage is going to be passe as far as any legal restrictions on marriage in a very short time in the United States. That's the prediction. That's a prediction from secular ex experts who have been studying the trends. Uh, just like uh, they wore our defenses down on the women's right movement, they wore our defenses down on homosexuality, they're wearing our f defenses down on abortion, so it's become commonplace. Notice how in 1973, if anybody had said that we'd, that we'd murder six million babies, nobody would have said, you know, everybody would have screamed and said it never happened. Not in this country. That's what they would have said. But do you believe it today? Most people don't even think, of, think about it. Don't give it a second thought. It's become so commonplace, there's, there's, it's hard to shock people with that anymore. I mean, I, I've used that statistic, you know, the murder of six million babies over and over again. And I've seen people just stoically look at me and just say, yeah, sure, that's, that's the way it is. We, our defense has been worn down, and our defenses are being worn down in the area of marriage. And the day will come where two people want to live together, nobody's going to say anything, by and large. Righteousness, the aspect of righteousness and, and a certain amount of Christian influence and the church of Jesus Christ would sure better keep saying things. I was down at John MacArthur's church, you know. This is really something. They have their young people come in, you know, for start going through their counseling procedure. They have nearly 300 weddings a year in that church, and uh, so they and they turn down three times that many. But the young couple comes in. And uh, they ask them, you know, if they know, know Jesus Christ, and they ask them concerning the matter of their commitment to the will of God, and they get all these answers, and then they just point blank ask them, say, are you having sex? And the kids, blah, 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 you know, they've been set up on this, you know, but they just ask them, point blank, are you having sex? And if they are, they say, all right. You want a June 4th wedding? Let's see, June, July, August, September. The earliest we will consider it is September. And in this meanwhile, we want, to, we want you to break your relationship off 
and we're going to have you go with so-and-so and you go with so-and-so and we're going to disciple you and begin to minister to you because you can't even know the will of God if you're doing that. And they find that, you know, what happens is they ferret out these people that are living together. And they begin to push things off and begin to work with them and if they'll respond, they'll consider marrying them. But they're taking a stand. I'll tell you, there was a day, you know, you couldn't even ask a question like that because we didn't even talk about those things, you know. But I'll tell you, we need as a church to always be willing to take a stand in these days. It's a tremendous issue. But you see, our defenses are being worn down. And marriage, we've treated it so loosely that we have, we have just written it off. And we have cooperated by having an attitude such as so many in the church today have concerning divorce, even though God says he hates it. God hates divorce, and so do I. And I'll tell you, I'll fight it tooth and nail with everything I've got because God says he hates it. But a lot of people say, okay, I, I think it's going to be better for the children if I get a divorce. Better for the children? Listen. When you do God's will, even though it means suffering, it always comes out for the public good. Now, where does it say that? Well, if you look at uh, chapter 45, verses 5 and 7, you'll see that. Now, therefore, he said to the brethren, Be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me here, for God did send me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. What was the purpose that Joseph had in life? The main purpose that God had was the preservation of the nation of Israel. Why was Esther called? How do you know, Mordecai, I said, but what you are called to the kingdom for such a time as this? What was the reason that Esther was placed where she was through circumstances beyond her control. Very simple. God wanted to preserve his people alive. Why did he preserve Moses? God wanted to preserve his people alive. God had made a commitment to Abraham, remember? There's a lot, a lot involved here. I can get really into this thing if I don't, let, don't uh, hold back here a little. But I, let me just say this. God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless your posterity forever. Forever. They put Abraham to the test and said, kill your only son Isaac. <laughs> kill your only son Isaac. New Testament, Hebrews 11, tells us that Abraham knew that he was the son of the promise, so he figured, very wisely figured, if I kill him, God will raise him from the dead. He's got to. God's committed. That's faith. Realizing that God is committed. God was committed to the preservation of the nation of Israel and still is committed to it. And a Hitler couldn't wipe them out. And the communists can't wipe them out. And the Arabs aren't going to wipe them out. And the Egyptians aren't going to wipe them out. Nobody's going to wipe them out. God says to the apple of mine eye, I am going to preserve those people. And when we get down to the end times, even if it's a thousand years from now, we get down to the end times. There is going to be a Jew. And there's going to be a Jew in every nation on the face of the earth. There's at least going to be 144,000 of them. But there's got to be more than that. Because there's going to be a whole unbelieving remnant as well. And God is going to preserve them to the end. And that's of course what it means, unlike some that have uh, stuck their neck out. That's what it means when he says, This generation shall not pass until all of these things be fulfilled. It's a generation of people. That is a, an ethnic group of people, an ethnos. This ethnos, this ethnic group of people will not perish until all of these things be accomplished. They're going to be accomplished, and they're going to be accomplished through the Jew. And you better believe it. But it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for Joseph suffering, going through all of this to preserve that whole nation alive. And God's purpose will be fulfilled. Without a Joseph, it couldn't have happened. And Joseph discerned that. And he was willing to forgive. There's a third thing. Ooh, I tell you, I could get going on this one. Forgiveness never plays God with the offender. 
does not play God. Chapter 50, verse 19. And Joseph said unto them, when they now, uh, Jacob is died. You see, these brothers are, are still, they are still rationalizing. With them, everything is relative. See, they've not learned to trust God yet. And so everything is relative, okay? Everything is relative in this way. They said, Joseph forgave us. How wonderful. When Jacob died, they said, Uh-oh, I wonder if he'll still forgive us. Now that Dad is gone, maybe now he just did that to get back and to, to wait until Dad was gone because if Dad... Dad would have been brokenhearted if he had destroyed us. And you, you can bet your bottom dollar, they must have discussed among themselves, that that, your bottom shekel, uh, that, that uh, uh, now that Dad is gone, Joseph is going to figure out some way to take revenge upon us. What does he say to them? He says in verse 19, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? Romans chapter 12 and verse 19 says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. If there's any retribution, God will take care of it. You don't have to pay people back. You don't have to get back at them. You think you'll get away with it? No, they won't. God will see to that. You say, but he's not doing anything about it. Read Psalm 73. The end of the story hasn't been written yet. He has set their feet in slippery places. Don't worry about them. Worry about yourself. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. Don't, whatever you do, allow yourself to suddenly think that God isn't doing a good enough job and He needs your help. Don't play God. Number four. Forgiveness always, always seeks the welfare of the offender. What did Joseph say to them? He says, but as for you, you thought evil against me. The word evil simply means wrong. You wronged me. But God meant it unto me, meant it unto good to bring it to pass as it is this day to save many people alive. Verse 21 now. Now, therefore, fear ye not. I will nourish you, and I'll nourish your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly unto them. My friend, that is forgiveness. Right? He not only said, all right, I'll forgive you. But he said, I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to care for your little ones. And he gave them comfort. And he spoke kindly unto them. All right, now, by way of application, I don't know where you may be in your relationship here. It may be that God has some lesson, maybe these lessons, maybe others, to teach you through the circumstances that he's bringing into your life at this present time. When your husband makes a decision that is wrong, all right, let's assume for a moment it's a bad decision. It really is wrong. I wonder if you recognize that God is in control. Do you really think that God is going to allow someone who he has placed over you to make a decision that is going to wipe out the purpose that God has for your life. Let me ask you another question. Let's assume that you're really dedicated to God. Let's assume that you are really committed to doing His will, but that you don't understand your present circumstances. Suppose you had an opportunity to be in that party in 1951 
with Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Jim McCullough, the others. And uh, you were one of the five that were trying to reach the Aki Indians. And in the process, you were killed. Would that destroy God's purpose for your life? We well, say, of course not. I mean, we know that that didn't destroy the purpose that God had for those lives because the Aki Indians were, were there. And the, uh, the, the, when my friend, uh, my friend uh, Dave Howard, who is, is uh, uh, Betty Elliott's brother, uh, uh, came and preached, there were the four of the five remaining. One had died, but the, uh, the five men that had killed the five missionaries, four of them sat in the front pew and they were elders in the Aka church. The purpose of God was fulfilled. The very people they sought to reach were reached. Was it a wrong sacrifice? No, of course not. You say, but we know all that. That's past history. But my circumstance is different, is it? Or is God in control? Will God use that bad decision in a twofold way? To teach the husband a lesson or to draw him to Christ? And at the same time build character in you? Of course he will. Of course he will. Do you realize that what has happened to you with all of the suffering and everything else, that God has a purpose for the public good? You meant it unto me for evil. God meant it for good to save many people alive. How do you know? Let me ask you, do you know how much is at stake? you know what's at stake? Can you tell me? Can you tell me today what is at stake in terms of your right responses rather than wrong responses? You say, well, of course not. I can't know the future. Can God? Now, knowing God knows the future and knowing you don't, let me ask you a question. Which one are you going to trust, you or him? Your judgment or his? Which will it be? We are faced with a pragmatic choice. Will you serve God or will you serve Baal? What was Baal? Baal was the epitome of man's commitment to himself. Humanism. That's all Baal was. What was the Tower of Babel? It was a commitment to humanism. To figuring out things apart from God. And astrology was a part of it. There are some people, some Christians, that are are more committed to the fortune in a fortune cookie than they are to God. People are looking for those external things. Why? Because they'd like to have a God that they can control and manipulate. And the only one they can control and manipulate is themselves. So they do. And they call that God. Listen, God knows the end from the beginning. The end from the beginning. He reads a book like I do. Reads the last chapter first and then fills in the details that go along. It's great. Super. Went to my son's play the other night. Shoot. He wouldn't tell me the ending of the thing. I suffered through the whole thing. And it was it's an Agatha Christie mystery and that's it's terrible, really. Sit there and suffer through it, and then finally at the end everything happens in the last minute. I just wanted to know that I went and saw it the next night and enjoyed it, you know. <laughs> Already knew I was gonna end. I didn't and I, I you can enjoy it so much more along the way when you know. Well God knows the end from the beginning, not the beginning from the end to the end. He doesn't know it down the line in sequence. He knows it from the end. He knows the result. And from there, he builds the whole thing. You don't know that, right? So don't trust yourself. Don't trust your own judgment. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not unto your own understanding. I always ask a person when I'm counseling them, Sooner or later I ask them, I don't necessarily start out with this, but sooner or later I ask them, what is your understanding of the situation? Oh, so they give it to me. And then many times I'll just say to them, do you realize how wrong that is? Because your understanding of the situation is always wrong. 
God's understanding of it is always right. You have to temper everything you have with Scripture and not lean unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Put Him in the front place. Let Him be Lord. And He then promises to direct our paths. When you, in the third place, when your husband makes a wrong decision, and you take it upon yourself to usurp the authority that God has placed over you, you are playing God. You're saying, God, I've got to be God in this situation. I've got to take revenge. I've got to take vengeance. I've got to make him suffer because if he doesn't suffer, he'll just go out and do it again. You ever say that? If I, if I right away just say, honey, that's great, I'm all for you, even though it's a bad decision, I know it's a bad decision, and I give him all this encouragement, then he thinks, ah, she's with me, and he goes out and he makes another bad one. Then he makes another one. Well, what's God trying to do in allowing him to do that? Well, maybe with him, he's trying to bring him to an end of himself. Remember, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He wants to bring him to a place of humility in his life where God's grace can begin to be bestowed upon him. So let God care, take care of him. But God doesn't need you to put your fingers in the pie, because when you do, guess what? That is pride. And what happens? God resists the proud. You've got two people. I, wish I, I always wish I could be an artist, you know, really draw beautiful pictures here and illustrate what I'm trying to say. But and here you have the man. Try to get a little short woman here because I always draw the woman taller. I didn't give her any neck, did I? <laughs> All right. Anyway, okay. Now, what we have here is this. Here's the, here's the, the one walking with God, okay? Uh, let's just say the Christian and the non-Christian. Okay, now, when the, the Christian, the, the non-Christian, naturally, would respond to most things in pride. Uh, most men would want to, uh, uh, say, get ahead in business in a certain way, because of, he has prideful reasons in many cases anyway. All right, so he's got pride. And because he has pride, he has God resisting him. Okay. Now, the woman, on the other hand, let's say is a Christian, and she has humility. All right. What does God do with her? Gives grace. To suffer anything. To put up with the, what's happening over on this side. Remember that there are 13 reasons for suffering, and only one of them is because of sin. Do you know that? Thirteen categories of suffering in Scripture. Only one is because of sin. You sin, that's one reason. It's discipline that God brings into your life, and you suffer because of that. But all of the other reasons have to do with other things. And one of the things we learn is that when you have a relationship with one who is under the condemnation or resistance of God, then you suffer as well. So you're going to suffer. No problem about it, but you're suffering according to the will of God. And God says, that is grace. Tremendous. Oh, I tell you, you just, this thing just goes on and on and on in all of the, the tying into the, into the Scripture. So God gives you grace. Now, God gives you the ability to, 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 to grace to discern in the first place. And part of that grace is you're able to see their disastrous results ahead of this man for the decision he's just made. You know that. Now, what are you going to do about it? Well, God's given you the grace not only to discern it, but he's also given you the grace to be silent about it, to have a meek and quiet spirit, and trust God to work it out. But at that point you say, but God, you're not doing it fast enough to suit me, because you have need of patience. You have need of patience, the book of Hebrews tells us, that after you've done the will of God, you're willing to go through the suffering that's connected with doing what God wants you to do. You have to lead need of patience. So you have need of patience. And so you say, God, I, if I just say, 
the, everything's fine. I love you, and we're going to go through this thing, and we're going we're gonna to lick it together. Then the, the crazy nut is going to go out and do the same stupid thing again. What's that? That's pride. So you see, you change from, you're still a Christian, but you change from humility to pride. Well, when you change from humility to pride, what happens? Well, God changes grace to resistance. Now you've got a double problem. Because, you see, your husband's got God resisting you. You've got God resisting you. And how can, the, how can you possibly make any progress toward sanctification and holiness and relationship of maturity and growth in your character if God is in the point of resistance? God resists the proud. So what do you do? Well, instead of resisting and retaliating and all of the rest, you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And he gives grace. And with that, he promises glory. That's the principle. So don't play God. There's one more. Real forgiveness always seeks the welfare of the offender. Speak kindly unto him. Comfort him. And whatever you do, let him know. What's the word that they used here? Nourish him. Nourish him. It's a word, by the way, that is used to, 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 to provide nourishment for a little child. Nourish him. Give him whatever is needed at that time to, to soothe the wounds. Don't worry. God will still be working inside where you can't reach. He'll be working in his conscience. But he'll use your deeds of kindness in some special way to touch the life of this man and build his love for you and his confidence in what God can do through you. A husband needs to know that a prudent wife, a wife with Sakal, a wife with the ability to see beneath the matter, is really a gift from God. He needs to know that and understand that. But he's not going to do it as long as you are resisting him. God wants us to learn the value that we have in any setting and circumstance because we are in the will of God. I wish I would have had time today. Um, let me just commend to you the last chapters of the book of Acts, where, I'm not going to be here next week, let me just take a quick minute and tell it to you. Just this. The Apostle Paul was told by God that he was going to go to Rome. Simple, okay? He went there as a slave. That is, he was put on a slave ship. And the beautiful story is that here he is, the slave. And before he leaves, he's the captain of the ship. Now, how does it happen? I'll tell you how it happens. He had such confidence that he was in the will of God that he was willing to work with every circumstance that arose. He didn't have to worry. He knew he was going to make it. God had already made that clear to him. And because he had confidence in the eventual outcome, all the way along, he, in the midst of the storm, when the ship was tossing back and forth, he just said, everybody be calm. Nobody's going to be lost. We're going to make it. When the ship was ready to be crushed upon the rocks, he said, some of the sailors started climbing out of the boat. He said, don't climb out of the boat. You climb out of the boat, you're no longer safe. Anybody in here is safe. Here's the wicked storm. He says, come on, bring the food. Let's eat. And the people ate. And before long, the, the, the guards and the captain of the ship were asking Paul for his advice. Why? Because here was a man who was so committed to the will of God that no circumstance could throw him off. He didn't say, oh Lord, why'd you get me into this mess? He simply committed himself to God. Christ did that. 
In the midst of all of his suffering, he committed himself to him who doeth all things well. Likewise, he wives. That's the next logical phrase in 1 Peter 3 after 1 Peter 2. Likewise, he wives. Can you trust God that much? I hope you can. I'll tell you, we need women today who will stem the tide in the midst of corruption. Compromise. Don't ever compromise the absolutes of the Word of God. Stand upon them and pray for us as we go to Scotland. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you that you are the blessed controller of all things in our lives. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would entrust our lives to you as our faithful, loving God. Thank you that you've given us the assurance in your word that you do all things well. Lord, we do pray for the Steels as they go to Scotland. And Lord, bless us as we remain behind and as we learn more from your precious word. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this message. Please fast forward this tape. Thank you.